this is the last week we're going to be studying 1 Samuel. We've been studying 1 Samuel all fall. We always, every, every year in the fall, the time before Christmas, the coming of Christ, we study the Old Testament. And, then, uh, and so we'll finish 1 Samuel next fall. And then after Christmas, we always study a gospel. After Christ has come in his incarnation and the birth of Christ at Christmas, we study a gospel. We're going to continue our study through Mark starting on January 1st. So this is our last uh, Sunday looking at 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 21. And you can follow along right there in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech uh, came to David, to, came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought uh, neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, uh, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you uh, will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let uh, his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, You see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, teach us uh, from uh, these uh, words of the scripture, and that by your spirit you would lead us to Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, that we would offer to him our worship, our love, our loyalty, our faith, our trust. And so uh, be our teacher now. We open our hearts to you in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Well, I've been listening to a, a book recently called A Non-Anxious Presence. Uh, it's by Mark Sayers, A Non-Anxious Presence. It's a book about, how, uh, about the anxiety in our culture and what it looks like to be a leader in an anxious culture. And one of the interesting observations the book makes at the beginning is that we generally think of anxiety as, you know, a personal individual issue that, that you might struggle with, I might struggle with, I, I struggle with anxiety. And so the way that we deal with anxiety, we find a counselor to help us manage our anxiety or to understand it or where it's coming from. And what the book points out, though, is that anxiety is actually a systemic problem. Uh, and the reason that Anxiety is particularly rampant in our culture right now is because there is so much change happening in our culture. There are so many things that are, are, are happening and all the changes that happen, not only are they happening quickly, but uh, we know all about them because of social media and because of technology. We're constantly bombarded where the foundations of our world are constantly being shaken. And this is especially true for Christians. You know, Christianity is in steep decline in our culture. And so there's a lot of unease for Christians being in our culture right now, on top of just the normal anxieties of being human in this world. And so as a result, it's not simply that Nate Walker is anxious. It's that I live in a chronically anxious system. And as much as a counselor is going to be helpful to me, a counselor cannot change the system. And so what do we do when we're in that kind of situation? Well, I think for most of us, when we're, uh, we're anxious, I know for me, it's like we want to find the secret cure, the secret answer that's going to resolve what's making us feel so unsettled. And so that's why, you know, for the last several decades, I mean, you know, uh, bookstores are filled with self-help books about, you know, uh, uh, setting goals or getting yourself organized or you know, learning to breathe better or, you know, becoming more self-aware. And I love self-help books, so I'm not criticizing self-help books. But against all of that, the Bible says that the secret to life is actually not a technique that a book can teach us. The secret to life is a person Jesus Christ. And, uh, and all the mystery and wonder of Christmas is touching on that deep longing in us that says, is there an answer to the secret of life of what makes human life finally work properly? What it's for. And it's amazing that that little baby in the manger is the answer. Now you might wonder, uh, what does all this have to do with this passage I just read to you from 1 Samuel about uh, David? Well, it turns out that this story that I just read to you from 1 Samuel, uh, Jesus himself read and he saw himself in this story. You know, this is a story about David and he's got this band of soldiers that are following him and they're all hungry and they're looking for bread and the priest gives them bread. And Jesus quotes this story on a Sabbath when he's with his little band of disciples. He's the anointed king, just like David. And he's got his band of disciples and they're hungry on a Sabbath. And he says the reason that his disciples, you know, eat grains, uh, you know, the heads of grains on the Sabbath, pluck heads of grains on the Sabbath is because David ate bread back in this strange story in 1 Samuel 21. And so I think if we read this story with the same lens that Jesus did, we see some of the Bible's answer to what is the secret to life. 
And uh, I want to point out four things, four ways this passage answers it. And this is the four answers to what is the secret to life. The secret of, to life is Jesus. The secret to life is community. The secret to life is suffering. And the secret to life is Christmas. Four things. The secret to life is Jesus. The secret to life is community. The secret to life is suffering. And the secret to life is Christmas. And I hope that this passage would just be a great meditation for all of us as during Advent as we prepare for the coming of our Lord and, and prepare to meditate on the incarnation at Christmas. So what is the secret to life? Four answers for us this morning. And the first is this, that the secret to life is Jesus. The secret to life is Jesus. Now, this passage uh, begins in verse 1 and says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Now, apparently what's happened is the Old Testament tabernacle, the tent, which was the center of worship in, in Israel in the Old Testament, was, had been moved to this little town or village called Nob. And the reason the priest is asking David, why are you alone, is because David was the bodyguard of the king. And so you think bodyguard of the king should be with the king. Why are you alone? Why aren't you with Saul? And so in verse 2, it says, uh, David answers, and David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. And with which I have charged you. And so David says, I have a secret mission from the king. Now, this is something that came up last Sunday because David is being evasive here because Saul actually wants to kill David. And, but David says, I'm on a secret mission from the king. So is David lying? You know, we saw Jonathan lied to Saul last week. Is David lying here? Well, he doesn't say that I'm on a mission for Saul. He says, I'm on a mission for the king. And it's several places in 1 Samuel through this book. Um, uh, it says that the Lord is actually the true king of Israel. And so David is not on a secret mission for Saul. He's on a secret mission for the Lord, who is the true king. And so when Jesus sees himself in this story, he says, I'm the same way. I've been sent on a secret mission from his father. And actually, uh, the, the, you know, the secrecy of this, you know, David says, tell no one. It's very similar to the way the Bible talks about the coming of Christ. So, for example, Ephesians puts it this way, that when Jesus came, it was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And it basically says before there were any mountains or there were even any stars, there was even a universe, before there were even angels in heaven, there was only the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they had a secret plan that no one knew about, that the Son of God would become a baby and he would come and dwell among us and he would save sinners like us. It was God's secret mission. And so uh, Jesus Christ is, in fact, God's secret to life. Now, you might hear that and say, well, you know, that's intriguing. Jesus is the secret to life, you know. But weren't, aren't there others who claim that God sent them and they had God's secret, you know, as Muhammad came as Allah's prophet or Joseph Smith had, you know, a secret revelation about God among the Mormons. And so um, what makes Jesus different than these other religious leaders who claim that they also knew the secret? Well, probably the most important difference is that no one else actually claimed to be the secret themselves. You know, like Buddha 
may claim that he will show you the way to enlightenment. I will show you the way to nirvana. But he would never say that he himself is the way. He's like, no, I'm not the way. I will show you the way, but I'm not the way. Same with Muhammad. Muhammad would have never said that he was Allah. I mean, that would be blasphemous to him. He would say, oh, I'm Allah's messenger or Allah's prophet. I'm going to tell you about Allah or tell you how to serve Allah, but not that he is Allah. Jesus alone in history has said something so wildly different, absolutely unique. There is no one with any credibility who has made any claim like what Jesus Christ has claimed. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the secret that you are looking for. He says, I am the light of the world. You know, everyone's, you know, we're, we live in a world filled with lies and no one knows what the truth is and we don't even know what the meaning of life is. He says, I'm the light that makes things clear. It all becomes clear in me. He says, I'm the bread from heaven. You all have this existential longing for like meaning in your life. I am the bread that satisfies that deep, profound longing that you have in your heart. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Humans have been living with the problem of death. I am the answer to the problem of death. Jesus was not claiming like David, I'm on a secret mission from the king. He says, I am the king who has come. I am the Lord who has come to you on the secret mission. And so the, the big thing the Bible teaches us is first that the secret to life is Jesus Christ himself. Now one other difference about Jesus is, is something that I realized very early on when I became a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 16, 17. My parents had sent me to a school that had a lot of emphasis on self-help. And uh, I remember at the school, there was a very popular book in the 90s called The Celestine Prophecy. And it was about this ancient prophecy from 600 B.C., you know, buried in the jungle in Peru that had been hidden. And it unlocked the truth about what human life was like. And all these kind of self-help New Agey kind of books. The thing that I realized about all of them is that they all said that the focus of my life should be about me. You know, it was about trusting in myself. It was about getting in touch with myself. It was about unlocking the powers within myself. And even though I was a brand new Christian at the time, I already knew that the big difference between all of these philosophies, New Age philosophy or self-help, and Christianity, that Christianity was that Christianity was about a relationship. It wasn't about just me and trusting in myself. It was about me trusting in an other. There was this other person, Jesus, who I had to deal with, who said things to me and loved me. It wasn't about me learning to love myself. It was about me learning to be loved by him. And at the center of my spiritual life was relationship and community. And that subtle but enormous difference is the key to the second answer to what is the secret to life. So the first secret is the secret is Jesus Christ. He's the king who's come on his own mission. But the second answer is the secret to life is community. If you want to know the secret to human life, it is about community and community focused on Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons Jesus saw himself in this passage was that little line in the end of verse 2 where David says, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. And one of the things we're going to learn about David as we go through 1 Samuel is that he's been anointed the new king to replace Saul. And Saul's trying to hunt down David to kill him because he doesn't want him to be the king. And, but all along, the, while David's on the run from Saul, there is this growing group of soldiers 
who love David. And there's a group of them in this passage who are all hungry, and they're loyal to David. And they say, we're going to fight for you, and we're going to follow you, and we're going to listen to you, and we're going to listen to your leadership, and we believe in you. And what that tells us is that the anointed one creates community around him. And Jesus was exactly the same way. You know, Jesus spent most of his ministries kind of avoiding the religious leaders who were attacking him. But multitudes of people were attracted to Jesus, to his healing and to his teaching. And they were attracted to his person and they gave him their loyalty. And, and so just as David had this band of soldiers coming around him, Jesus had a band of disciples that were forming around him. And that's exactly what we are. We are a group of people, a community that is formed around this central person, Jesus Christ. We've all given our Lord. We believe in him. We trust in him. We want to follow him. We listen to his words. We want to fight for him. We want to be a part of his mission. We are a community that's found around Christ. And so we, when we're saved in our spiritual life, we're never just saved as individuals. Christianity, you know, it's not just that we're, you know, I have a personal relationship with God and it's just me and alone kind of meditating in, by myself. No, uh, Christianity is a remarkably communal faith. And actually, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine who, he grew up uh, in India in a Hindu family. And he was explaining to me some of the major differences between Christianity and Hinduism. I didn't really even realize these things. Like one thing, for example, he says, Christianity has a very intellectual aspect to it. Like what we're doing right now where we take a passage of scripture and we got to explain it and we think about philosophies and understand this worldview and God, this intellectual component. I guess Hinduism doesn't really have any of that. We have to learn a lot. But another thing he says is that Hindu, uh, Hinduism doesn't have this communal element either that we're doing, that we're all gathered together like this. You know, it's basically you go to the temple in Hinduism and you bring your offering to the gods and then they give you a blessing and then you leave. And, uh, and I think that, you know, things like other religions, it's very easy to think that, you know, are all these religions basically doing the same thing? You know, they have their temple, we have our church building, they have their priests, we have our pastor, they have their holy book, the Bhagavad Gita, we have the Bible, um, you know, we worship are we functionally doing the same thing, but it's just a different name? And what he was saying is absolutely not. Well, and this was, I don't mean to disparage Hindus. This was his analogy. He says going to the temple is much more like going to Costco. You know, we wouldn't all plan to go to Costco at the same time. You just go to Costco, you, draw, you pay your money, you get the things you need, and you leave. And that's what they would do. You bring your offering to the God, you get your blessing, and you leave. There's not this... We need to come together and appear before God and worship before a father who's making a family. That is something very unique about what Jesus Christ is doing in our faith. The gospel says that the secret to life is being a part of a community that's centered on Jesus Christ. Now, of course, some of you might say, well, you know, there's other kinds of communities, it's not just Christians who have communities. You know, there's the bowling team and there's, you know, you could go rock climbing or you could do swing dancing with a group. And, and you say, I have my community of people that I, I rock climb with or, or you know, what, whatever it is I play soccer with. What's the difference of the kind of community that Jesus is forming in the church? Well, you'll notice in this passage that David's soldiers are without food. And so David asked this priest at Nob for bread. And the priest says, well, the only bread I have is the holy bread. And 
uh, the bread of the presence that comes from the table inside the tabernacle. And, and you notice what David says there in verse 5. It says, And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? Now, what, what David's talking about here is in the Old Testament Levitical law, having sex made a person unclean till evening, just for that one day. And being unclean means that you couldn't participate in the worship around the tabernacle. And what's important to understand about the Old Testament law is that there were three kind of ceremonial statuses that you could have. You could either be unclean, you could be clean, or you could be holy. And uh, to be clean meant that you could come into the court just outside the tabernacle and you could bring your offerings and your, your animal would be sacrificed there and you could eat your peace offerings with the, with the priest there. But only the priests were holy and they could go into the tabernacle and eat in the presence of the Lord. But David in this passage interestingly calls all of his soldiers, the community that's formed around him, he says they're not just clean, they're holy. And what holiness means, to be holy means that you are devoted to God. It means that you have a purpose. You have a mission. You have been chosen by God to be his instrument for his special purposes. That's what it means to be holy. And David views his community as servants of God. And so what makes our community different than a bowling team is holiness. We are not just playing chess or line dancing. We are devoted to God's purposes and his kingdom in the world. We have a mission. And so Jesus has come here with a secret mission, and then he's formed a community, and we all share in the secret mission with him. We are a part of it. And when you realize that, it leads to a, a third answer to the, the secret to life. Okay? So what do you need to know about the secret to life? First of all, the secret to life is focused not on a technique. It's on a person, Jesus Christ. And he is forming a community around him and being a part of that community that's devoted to God and his purposes and his kingdom. But the third thing that we see is that the secret to life is suffering. Important information in life is that the secret to life is suffering. And one of the main storylines repeated throughout the Bible is that God's people are regularly forced out of their homeland into a wilderness where they suffer before they return back home to be restored to God. And you see that over and over again. The very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve are in paradise in a garden, and then they sin against God, and they're sent out in exile, out into the wilderness of the world, and they're waiting to come back in. Or if you read the story of Jacob in the, uh, in the book of Genesis, Jacob was Isaac's son, and his brother Esau wants to kill him, so he has to leave his homeland for 20 years. He's a slave in uh, his uncle Laban's house for 20 years, and then he comes back home, a transformed man. And then Jacob's son, Joseph, is in, lives in a dungeon for 12 years in Egypt, and he's suffering in this kind of exile until he becomes the prime minister and saves his family. And then all the Israelites, they spend 400 years in Egypt, and they become slaves. They're, they're living in this exile, in this in this suffering until Moses finally leads them out. And then they spend 40 years in the wilderness before they, Joshua leads them into the promised land. And then one of the major storylines in the Bible, in the Old Testament as well, is that God's people spend 70 years in Babylon in exile before they finally return home. 
Over and over again, the story is exile and return, wilderness, and then promised land. And of course, the greatest version of this is Jesus himself. His great exile was the cross when he took the punishment of his people on the cross and then he was raised from the dead and he ascended back into heaven, back home to his father. It's exile and return home. And so this pathway of suffering, of a wilderness, of an exile, this is the key to life. You have to understand The pathway to glory is always through the cross. And the same storyline happens with David in this passage. You know, David up to this point has been favored in the king's court. He basically became a member of Saul's family. And then now uh, Saul wants to kill him. And so he's sent into exile. This passage is the beginning of David's exile. um, Where he no longer lives in the king's house and he's being hunted. And you can see the threat against him there in verse 7. Where it says, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And so in the next chapter, we find out that Doeg was a really wicked man. And he tells Saul where David is. And then he comes and he kills the priests at Nob. And so David is having his own exile and exodus story. He has to suffer in the wilderness and in exile before he can truly become king, before his reign really begins. And actually, if I could just point out, you know, that this is kind of an exodus story. David's having just like Israel had an exodus. You see in verse 6 how it says, So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. So this is bread that was inside the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this tent that was basically heaven on earth. And if you looked at the curtains of this tent, the curtains of the tent were blue. They looked like the sky, and they had woven into them these angels. So when you looked at the tabernacle, it was kind of like looking up into the sky, into the heavens. And inside the tabernacle of the heavens was this bread. And so here's David with all his men who are now wandering in the wilderness, and there's bread from heaven that is feeding them. And that's exactly what happened to Israel in the story of Exodus. You know, they're wandering in the wilderness, and God provided the manna, the bread from heaven, to feed them. And, uh, And so wandering in the wilderness, depending on God's bread from heaven, is the secret storyline of life, and we all need to know that. It's important information for you and me. If our lives are going to be sh- take the shape in the form of the Bible, they're going to take the shape of exile and exodus, as suffering as the path to glory, as cross and resurrection in that order. And so the secret to life is suffering. So if you want life to make sense, here are three ingredients that you need for life to make sense. At the center of life is the person Jesus Christ, The center of life is the community that Jesus is forming around him. And that at the the center of life is also suffering, which is the only path to follow him. But there's one more secret I want to point out from this passage, and that's um, our final answer, that the secret to life is Christmas. And how do we see Christmas in this passage from 1 Samuel? Well, you know, David is fleeing from Saul, And he ends up needing to go to Saul's enemies, the Philistines, and he's going to go live among the Philistines. 
And you see what happens in the last part of this passage in verse 10 there where it says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And, and David took these words to heart and was uh, much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And so David goes and lives among these enemies and he pretends to be insane. And so his enemies are unsuspecting of him. So David is in enemy territory in disguise. And, you know, it made me think of a, a passage that C.S. Lewis has from his book, Mere Christianity, that, I, that describes what's happening in Christmas. And it sounds a lot like this. This is what it says. Lewis says, Any enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is, if this world is the land of the Philistines. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. And so he says the rightful king of the world has invaded this world incognito. God himself has come to dwell among us. It's like he was uh, in disguise, and he came not only as a man, he, he was once a baby, born into a poor family, born of Mary in Bethlehem, a small village south of Jerusalem. And again, this is one of the big differences between Jesus and all the other religious sages who came before or after. All those sages, they came to tell us what we need to do in order to find God. But Christmas is about what God did to come find us. So when we say that the secret of life is Christmas, it really means the secret to life is grace. That God would come to us. He would come find us, not of our own labor, our own works. You and I, we cannot save ourselves. But the rightful king has come to save us as a gift of love. And I love how Lewis says that you know, when we come to church every week, we're hearing the secret wire from God himself, the insights you know, we're in enemy territory, and so the Lord has made known to us his, this secret. The Bible gives us God's secrets. We sing the secrets. We eat and drink the secret into ourselves. And so this Christmas, my prayer is that you would find Jesus Christ to be the true secret to life, who will, not, uh, who will lead you not only into rich community, but even into suffering is the only true path of life. And the world may not recognize him. He has come incognito. But the mystery hidden in God has finally arrived. And so may the Lord give you the faith to recognize him as he is here. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that in a world so filled with anxiety and change and confusion, there is a truth that we can be certain about. That the Son of God has come 
to dwell among us, that your kingdom is here and is at hand, that you love us, that we can trust you. And so, Lord, uh, we do pray that uh, Jesus would be the center of each of our lives and he would be the center of this community and he would be the one who brings us together and also enables and empowers each of us to walk through whatever wilderness or exile you have set before us. And Lord, that we might know deeply this Christmas uh, that we are saved by grace. That is our great hope, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.